The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long E Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long E supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long E has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long E products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. Most of their carbon footprint comes from scope three. It's the stuff you buy upstream. It's how that those goods get to you. It's how you get those goods to your customers. And then it's the emissions from your customers actually using your product. This is the whole ball game. And this is a, a part of the increasing seriousness of climate action. And the measurement problem here is really about, does the measurement enable action? Digging in on how big business is getting into the carbon management game. This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. I'm going to start with a quote from a speech by Gary Gensler, who is the chairman of the SEC in the United States. This was a speech on July 28th of this year. He said, quote, I think updates to public company disclosures and to fund disclosures on climate could bring needed transparency to our capital markets. This gets to the heart of the SEC's mission to protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. When it comes to disclosure, investors have told us what they want. It's now time for the commission to take the baton. So that's from a speech in which he announced that he had directed the SEC staff to pull together a rulemaking proposal on mandatory corporate climate risk disclosure by the end of this year. It could be a watershed action, so to speak. But even before the SEC made this commitment, the world of enterprise carbon accounting, management, and disclosure has been garnering a lot of attention, particularly in Silicon Valley circles, where those with an enterprise software hammer can easily recognize this particular nail. But it's also easy to understand if every company, large and small, discovers the need to accurately account for its greenhouse gas emissions, report on those emissions, set a roadmap for reduction, identify both physical and transition risks along the way, and do all of this in a manner consistent with SEC guidelines, you can imagine they'll need a lot of help. So it's a sexy sector, but it's also an early one. Carbon accounting and management has seen pretty limited adoption to date, and in its current form is often led by consultants doing pretty high-level annual surveys. So will this become the next big enterprise software vertical and maybe the first truly at-scale software sector in climate tech? Because I would argue there is no other. Well, one bull on this market is Taylor Francis. Taylor is the CEO and co-founder of Watershed, which is one of the most well-regarded emergent players in this enterprise carbon management sector. Taylor and the rest of his founding team spun out of Stripe, where they were building internal carbon management tools, and they spun out to help other companies follow suit. 
They've since raised capital from none other than Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins, along with the co-founders of Stripe themselves. As you'll hear, I think Taylor has a really thoughtful approach to this market and what companies are going to need to do as they enter this wild world of enterprise carbon management. So here we go, my conversation with Taylor. Taylor, welcome. Thank you, Shell. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you and excited to talk about the wild world of what I've been calling enterprise carbon management, but I think is like an, enough of a nascent sector that doesn't really have like a term of art from the industry yet. But let's start with the kind of high level state of affairs. Um, how would you characterize the current state of enterprise carbon accounting management, disclosure reporting, however you want to define it? Yeah, well, I think we are in the early innings of a very fast transition to what I would think of as kind of the climate governance imperative for companies. Um, and the climate governance imperative for companies is that all public companies, all large companies in the very near future are going to have to have a set of structures and routines around carbon. And those structures and routines are they're going to measure carbon, they're going to have plans and teams tasked with executing those plans on reducing carbon, and they're going to disclose their progress on a regular basis. Where are we today? You know, I think that in the last few years, and especially the last few months, you've seen the scale and seriousness of climate governance for companies change. And so on the scale side, you know, I think most big companies, most public companies have some sort of climate program, some sustainability report, they're publishing a PDF, they're reporting to CDP, they're doing something. Um, and that is quickly going to 100%, where I think every large company next year is going to be doing something on climate. On the seriousness side, the honest reality is that most climate programs at most companies today are um, early on the seriousness curve, early on the impact curve. They're kind of dipping their toe into measurement. They're dipping their toe into reporting. They're just starting to think about what does it actually take to reduce emissions. So yeah, scale increasing, seriousness heading in the right direction, but early. My hope is that in the next couple of years, we're going to get to a place where every large company has a serious climate program, and that is just a part of doing business. Let's we'll talk about what a serious one looks like, but let's talk about what the less serious versions are. The, what we've seen mostly historically, right? So as you said, many companies, and then increasingly now most companies are at the point where they have something, but it is an annual PDF report of some sort with you know, a pretty high level accounting, generally speaking, and maybe a bit of semi-plan sprinkled in. Do I have that about right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that um, traditionally, call it the last five years, we've had this kind of period of sustainability disclosure going mainstream. And the, the thing, if you're a company in the sustainability disclosure world or in the sustainability disclosure paradigm, you publish your report. And at a minimum, it's a PDF. Best case, it's something you submit to CDP. Um, maybe you're getting for, it. For our less knowledgeable yes. listeners, CDP is the Carbon Disclosure Project. Carbon Disclosure Project is the kind of central clearinghouse for carbon numbers. Um, they've seen hockey stick growth in the number of companies disclosing to CDP. It's in the 10,000 companies per year range now, which is awesome. So yeah, traditional climate program looks like once a year, you're publishing your numbers. Um, and... At the same time, in the last few years, I'd say there have been a few pioneering companies that have been doing 
path-breaking work of going way beyond that. And these have generally been companies like Google, Patagonia, Apple, Facebook, Walmart, companies with a lot of resources or a lot of motivation on climate. And they've been thinking about it in a totally different way, which is what is the set of things we can do that actually reduce our entire emissions ASAP? Um, and so I think looking forward, I think disclosure is kind of the new floor and we're seeing that kind of more serious climate action, I think will become the standard that every company of a certain scale aspires to um, relatively quickly. Yeah, I think there's like a few components of this world that sometimes get lumped together and maybe will all ultimately become part of one cohesive carbon strategy for an enterprise. But historically, I think I've been kind of siloed, which is you mentioned disclosure. So that's basically accounting. Yep. Right? What are my current emissions? Yep. Look at the can, graph. I think publish later, your graph. Yeah, publish your graph. And then depending on how detailed and serious you want to be, it can be just your scope one emissions or scope two and scope three. We'll talk more about that later. But that's like disclosure is one thing. Then there's risk disclosure. What are my climate risks, either physical risk or transition risk? And then there's the mitigation plan, which may or may not come with a specific target attached to it. And and those feel like, at least historically, I think they've sat in separate, I mean, maybe they all show up in the same report ultimately, but within the enterprise, like structurally, do those are those siloed from each other? Honestly, I just think most companies in the past have only been doing the disclosure reporting and risk piece. And very few companies have had high seriousness, high commitment reduction and removal plans. Um, as you know, and I think we're shifting into this decade of action where it's not going to be enough for companies just to report their number or report their graph. They're going to actually be bending their graph and they're going to be held accountable by investors and regulators on how quickly they bend their graph. Um, and I'm seeing the, the emergence of a new kind of climate lead function at companies where if you're the climate lead at a company, your responsibility is measurement and reporting, target setting, and then kind of doing the internal organizational alchemy to make sure the company actually achieves the target. And then the, comp the, the teams actually doing the work often sit all across the company. It may be in the supply chain team or in the product design team or the, the, the culinary team at a company like Sweetgreen. Um, but there is a climate lead who is responsible for measurement reporting and target setting. And then they are the kind of internal evangelist who gets everything done. Um, and this is a thing we can talk more about later, but the really interesting thing is who that person reports to has changed. And it, a, a marker of increased seriousness in my book is that a lot of companies are now having CFOs be the executive sponsor, the person on the executive team who's driving climate work. And that's great because there is seriousness and budget and commitment and follow through that comes from initiatives that are driven by a CFO. And we're seeing it kind of transition out of a social impact CSR PR land of the past. Um, and I think that's a good sign. Right. I mean, the big knock on, you know, the first wave of excitement around sustainability, accounting and disclosure and reporting, the big knock on it was that mostly you were trying to sell, if you were selling services in that space, you're selling into a chief sustainability officer or up through a chief sustainability officer who, you know, they were sort of notoriously never empowered and they never had sufficient budget. And it was always tough to really scale something that way. Things that go up to the CFO obviously get more attention than basically anywhere else. To what degree is it, this is, I guess, segueing into what's changing now, but, um, 
to what do you degree is are you seeing this stuff roll up to the CFO versus the chief marketing officer? Because a lot of companies I think are starting to view this. This is equally important, right? As an opportunity of their leaders in sustainability or greenhouse gas emissions reduction or or removal or whatever. Um, they see it as an opportunity for brand strengthening. We see both. And I think both are good. Both are a sign of climate action going mainstream at companies. Um, I think most large companies, the CFO is thinking about climate. And the reason is that the imperative is this climate governance imperative. It's this kind of scaffolding of regulatory expectations of public accounting standards like um, the GHG protocol and TCFD and SASB and these other kind of acronyms that are becoming acronyms that the CFO wants to make sure they are achieving. Um, And so I think that's the motivation for the CFO is, hey, part of running a company well in the 2020s is to have a climate governance program that we're proud of. The CMO um, kind of motivation is more around customers. Honestly, we see the CMO involved more in Europe. Um, And I think in general, Europe has been a couple years ahead of the curve on every part of the climate governance movement for companies. And we work with companies like Revolut and Monzo, Klarna, Wise, super fast-growing financial technology companies in Europe. And there the marketing teams are super engaged because there are young European climate-conscious consumers who are making decisions about what apps and products and services they use with an eye on climate. Um, I'm guessing that will come more mainstream in the U.S. soon as well. So you mentioned some of these acronyms. There is an, there is a real acronym soup, and it's reflective. It's reflective of something I think about the market, which is there's been a proliferation of different reporting frameworks and reporting standards to which companies can report. There's also this problem that I've heard of. So you're let's just imagine you're a large public company, and you want to do this right. Your interest is to have a climate governance program that is robust and is well appreciated and that investors give you credit for. So first thing you got to do is you got to just even, you know, start with the disclosure and the accounting. You got to do the accounting internally. We can talk about how hard that is, but then you got to disclose it and you got to choose amongst a bunch of different frameworks through which to, to, to report different reporting templates. And then you've got a bunch of large institutional shareholders uh, who don't like any of those frameworks and have their own. So like BlackRock sends you their own private framework or questionnaire that's like, well, this is the BlackRock specific one. You got to respond to everybody individually. This is obviously like fundamentally distinct from financial reporting, which has become much more standardized. And I think the hope that most folks have is that over time, there will be more standardization in this reporting. And so I guess two questions on that. First, do you think that's actually going to happen? Is that Do you see that happening? And second, is that good or bad for a company like Watershed that is building the tools for companies to report against? If it's much more simple, um, will they just be able to do it themselves? I think we are seeing the emergence of this whole scaffolding. And every acronym is a different piece of the scaffolding. Um, This whole scaffolding kind of community of practice around what does good climate governance look like. So a lot of people are wringing their hands over all the acronyms. I'm a little bit more sanguine about it. I think it's the sign of the emergence of professionalized climate governance. And I actually think there's more consistency between the different acronyms than meets the eye. Um, before, And so I'd love to kind of do a tour through alphabet soup and where I think that's headed. But to your second question, you know, Watershed, our mission is to enable effective climate action by companies. 
we are not in this just to enable better reporting. We don't want to be a tool that helps you observe your graph. We want to be a tool that helps you bend your graph. And so anything that makes it easier for companies to move from the measurement and disclosure moment into the action moment is, is good for us. And it's something we're trying to bring about. That's our, our lens on the carbon accounting front is how can we just make high quality carbon accounting, low friction for everybody so that these climate leads can spend their team on the stuff that actually matters, which is buying clean power, funding carbon removal, engaging suppliers. So I'm excited for more standardization. We're betting big time on shifting from all the time spent on the reporting to all the time spent on the action. All right. There's nothing we love on this show more than running through acronym soup. So let's take a tour. Give us give us the, the key acronyms and where they fit in the scaffolding that you're describing. So I think there's three pieces of the scaffolding. Part one is accounting. What are the rules on how a company figures out what its carbon footprint is? And here, I think there's actually a really good story around um, consensus and consistency because the GHG protocol, which the World Resources Institute has been working on for north of a decade, is the gold standard. Every... Everyone is kind of singing from the same hymn book on the GHG protocol, which both tells you how to measure, kind of take activity data, how many kilowatt hours of electricity are you using, how much are you buying from different vendors, multiply it by an an emissions factor, and that gets out a CO2e or carbon dioxide equivalent number. Um, And then the GHG protocol also tells you what to count. And this is where you hear phrases like scope one, scope two, scope three, which basically mean what spheres of influence within your company are you counting? So the GHG protocol, I think, is the core of this climate governance scaffolding. It's the accounting rules. And the good news is that pretty much every other standard, every other part of the scaffolding we'll talk to, talk about, kind of refer back to the GHG protocol. Um, So that's good news. I think for what it's worth, that the, the unsolved standards problem on accounting is what data goes in, you know, garbage in, garbage out, what level of granularity, what level of specificity actually goes in. This is where we're spending a lot of time trying to help companies do carbon accounting at the line item level. Every single purchase that a company makes, trying to get to granular, actionable emissions factors, um, what is the specific company I bought that product from? What is the carbon impact of their specific practices? That's where this kind of first first category of the scaffolding really needs to get better fast, is to shift from a world of averages, everyone's kind of using different input data, and so it's impossible to compare anyone's output numbers to something um, more actionable, granular. All right, so going down the one step down the scaffolding rabbit hole, then what you're describing is a challenge in accounting for scope three emissions, which is I'm uh, I'm a large company, I bought an HP printer. What are the emissions embedded in my purchase of that printer? Exactly, and for most companies, most of their carbon footprint comes from scope three. It's the stuff you buy upstream. It's how that those goods get to you. It's how you get those goods to your customers. And then it's the emissions from your customers actually using your product. This is the whole ballgame. And this is a, a part of the increasing seriousness of climate action is that scope three went from being totally optional in the past. Climate programs just kind of looked at the four walls of the company office to now the core of good climate action in the future. And the measurement problem here is really about does the measurement enable action? That's the litmus test in my mind. The way you are measuring, does it enable you to take the right step? 
And the traditional approach to measuring scope three emissions is to say, I spent a million dollars on computers. And the EPA tells me that computers emit 0.2 kilograms of CO2 per dollar. Now, that's a bummer because that doesn't enable you to take any action. The only way you can reduce your emissions is to buy fewer computers. But I mean, maybe you can do that, but that's probably not the way to run your company well. Where we need to get to is for someone to say, I bought 1,000 MacBook Pros. And Apple has disclosed that the carbon footprint of a MacBook Pro in 2019 was 185 kilograms of CO2 per laptop. And that is lower than if I'd bought a bunch of Dell Latitude laptops. Or, or to go even a step further someday, right? I bought 100 MacBook Pros and I bought, I shipped them to my facility in Portland, Oregon, and Apple produced them in, you know, wherever in China. And so not only here's the embedded emissions in the MacBook Pro, but also the, the shipping emissions associated. Totally. And so that's the world we need to get to because that world of accounting enables action where a procurement lead can choose to buy from a different company or someone designing a product can choose different materials to go into the product. So that's kind of why I said our whole lens on this is reporting is in service of action. And the way this this first leg of the climate governance stool, the kind of accounting standards, you know, the GHG protocol has the right set of rules, but we need to raise the floor on are people doing their numbers in a way that actually enables them to take the right set of action. And that's what we spend all of our time at Watershed trying to figure out. It's the first level of the scaffolding. Level two is around reporting standards. So the accounting tells you how you do the numbers. The reporting standards are the format in which you disclose those numbers to the world. And the audiences that really care, that are driving this in a meaningful way, are investors and the regulators that that watch out for investors. And here, we're st- you start to get into a little bit of sprawl, a little bit of acronym sprawl, um, where you've got TCFD, which is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Always hard to remember because they omit f- some of the words from the acronym. Um, you've got SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Um, you've got GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, a few others. Um, and the good news is that all of these different standards refer back to the GHG protocol. So... They all ask you to do the math in the same way, but they have different expectations about what non-quantitative information you're reporting, what qualitative information you're sharing. SASB and GRI have more kind of qualitative information, and they have different formats and PDFs, and is it in the proxy statement? There's a whole bunch of ink that can be spilled over that. Um, And this is the the layer that I suspect we'll see some standardization, some... Um, consolidation in the future. My hope is that that consolidation pushes in the direction, in two directions. One is towards numbers rather than words. More quantitative, less qualitative. The numbers don't lie. You can kind of fill out a qualitative sustainability report and write all the right PDFs and be an oil or coal company and get an A. But if the standards shift in the direction of carbon per dollar, carbon per product, how is carbon intensity changing year over year, I think that's good. And then the other way I hope that these standards shift is towards holding companies accountable for the targets they've set in the past. And actually, you know, in the same way that stocks get punished if you don't meet your guidance, you know, companies should lose um, in the rankings if they don't meet the targets that they set out before. So that's kind of level two. What are the, how are you reporting this to the world? There's a bunch of acronyms today. I think we're headed in the direction of TCFD kind of winning. Um, I think that's a good thing. 
And I hope that it leads to more focus on numbers, plans, and performance against Target. All right, on to level three, the final, the boss level of the scaffolding. Boss level of the scaffolding is is what type of target are you setting? Um, and here I'd say there's kind of three three things to pay attention to. Act one was carbon neutrality. Five years ago, what was a company committing to? Carbon neutrality. What did that mean? Different thing for every company. But at the end of the day, they were buying some set of offsets to equal some set of emissions. In general, they were buying relatively cheap offsets to equal a relatively small chunk of their footprint. Scope one and two, buildings, maybe you throw in business travel and commute. So that was kind of the first entrant on the target scene. It's carbon neutral Wild West. I think the second entrant on the target scene is the Science-Based Targets Initiative, or SBT or SBTI. Again, the World Resources Initiative, plus a couple other great nonprofits, basically asked the question, what would it take for the world to beat climate change? And then what does that mean for a specific company? So if you're setting a science-based target, you are committing to do in your own organization across all scopes of your emissions what the world needs to do to keep warming below one and a half degrees um, above pre-industrial levels. And SBT, I think, gets some flack for being a fairly complicated process. There's long PDFs on what type of targets are permissible in different scopes of emissions, but it all comes from this like very rigorous question around what needs to happen in the world? What does that look like at a micro scale in my company? And critically, SBT doesn't give you credit for offsets. It's only about reductions, and it's especially about driving reductions through your supply chain in scope three. So that was kind of the second entrant on the target scene. In our opinion, excellent standard if you have the kind of bandwidth to metabolize it. Um, and then the third entrant is, is net zero. This is all the buzz in the last two years. And this is the one where I think if you ask five different people what net zero means, you'll get five different answers. That's a problem, but net zero is also the best standard. And so if we can get everyone to agree on what good net zero looks like and set that as the bar for climate governance, I think that is going to drive a really good thing. And the reason for that is net zero is basically the combination of the previous two, right? It's it's carbon neutrality in the sense that it allows for some measure of offsetting. And we'll talk about what kind of offsets you favor, but it measures, it allows for some of that, but it also requires a fair amount of reduction in it, probably predominantly reduction and then offset the rest. Totally. Our opinion is that true net zero requires three things. Um, number one, it requires you to count everything. Scope one, scope two, and especially scope three. You don't get to say you're net zero just for your office when, by the way, most of your emissions come from your supply chain. So that's kind of pillar number one, count everything. Pillar number two, have a reduction plan that is at least as good as what the Science-Based Targets Initiative would ask you to do. Um, Deep reductions in your supply chain in line with what the science demands of your overall sector. And then it adds the step three, um, and this is where there's some debate. Our opinion is that step three, the zero part of net zero, is true, durable, permanent carbon removal. That the way you get to zero is by taking carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it underground, not paying someone else not to pollute, which is what most offsets, most kind of $5 a ton offsets are. Right. We've talked about this before on the show, but just to repeat it, the distinction between a traditional carbon offset and a carbon removal credit or 
paying for carbon removal, people don't like to use the term offsets with regard to this stuff, is rather than uh, paying for someone to avoid emitting something, you are literally paying for somebody to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere somehow and sequester it permanently. Yep. You can't offset your way to true zero as a planet. You know, at some point, there's no one else to pay to avoid emissions. But reductions plus true removal is the recipe for getting to net zero on the planetary scale. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. Now, this gets to one of the things that I've been thinking about a little bit. You know, I'm excited that there's been so much new activity around carbon removal, um, spurred on in part by there being buyers, voluntary buyers of carbon removal credits, including your former employer, Stripe. And I think that's good. And we clearly, I mean, the IPCC report that just came out this week makes it pretty clear we we need it. What worries me about it from a uh, enterprise carbon strategy perspective is that it's actually much simpler, I imagine. You could tell me if this is true. It's very, it's actually pretty straightforward if for me as an enterprise to pay for carbon removals of X tons. I just find my source or I use a broker or what I do whatever I do. I put on an RFP and I buy it. And that's a certain number of tons and it's really straightforward. In contrast to all of the complicated gymnastics I have to do to reduce, which includes the detailed accounting and then crediting for reductions and avoidance, right? Like in that case, I should be getting credit for avoidance because I bought the the uh, HP computers instead of the, uh, God, I don't even know who makes computers, something instead of the Apple MacBooks, whatever it is. But that's like credit for an avoidance and that's complicated. And so I, I wonder how you navigate that dynamic of like we do, everybody agrees, I think basically it's reduced then offset. It's reduced then remove, whatever you want to call it. But the reducing is harder, right? Yes. It's such a good question. It's a big part of why we started Watershed. Um, I think there are two critical things that need to happen here so that the good version of this future plays out where companies are driving reductions and removal and not the bad version of the future where you don't get the first step. Um, I think the first thing that needs to happen is this definition of net zero that goes mainstream needs to include reductions first. And that's the thing that's a little scary right now is net zero is getting thrown around without a common definition. 
So I think I think the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to align around a definition of net zero that requires reductions first, that you can't count yourself as net zero if your emissions keep ballooning and you just allocated a huge budget for carbon removal. Though there we get into another thing that I think is a, a thorny challenge we're going to be facing here, which is how much reduction is enough reduction, right? Because we're, we're, we're going to say, look, first reduce, then remove the rest. But first reduce how much? What's a reasonable amount to expect for any given company to reduce before we allow them to remove the rest? So that's what SBT is trying to answer. And SBT's painstaking work is to go sector by sector and say, okay, what needs to happen for the sector on a planetary scale? Okay, if you're going to be a company getting credit for a science-based target, you need to do at least those things that the whole planet needs to do. And so hopefully SBT fills that, fills that void of saying what amount of reduction is enough. And then the second thing that needs to happen is that we do need to align around what counts as a removal. Because I think that the nightmare scenario here is net zero becomes kind of a new coat of paint on all the old school avoided emissions offset carbon neutral commitments. Um, and it's really important that the way you get all the way to zero be genuine, durable, permanent carbon removal. That's important for two reasons. Reason number one is that's that's the ball game. We, that's what we need. Um, reason number two is that it's kind of as a self-resolving answer to your initial question, which is, isn't net zero just easier than actual reduction work? It may be easier, but if you're paying for true removals, it's darn expensive. Um, we run the math for companies on this every day. And if you're paying for genuine carbon removal, it adds up um, if you don't cut your footprint. And so there's a kind of module and watershed that basically shows you this table of how much is your business going to grow? Um, how much are your emissions going to reduce because you're going to invest in the hard work of redesigning your business in a low carbon way? What price per ton of carbon removal are you going to pay? And then what is the carbon removal bill that's going to come due in 2030 or 2040? That table is what funds the reduction work at companies that are doing this right. They say, hey, we know that there's going to be a price of 100, maybe north of $100 per ton of CO2 in this future where we commit to true removal. And that is creating the budget, the motivation, the impetus, the motive force for us to wrestle with our supply chain, to redesign the menu, to force our suppliers to install methane digesters. So that's how the scaffolding, that's how the scaffolding needs to fit together for this stuff all to matter. Can you give an example of something that might have the facade of being a true carbon removal, but is not actually? I mean, there's obvious things like the early days of carbon offsets, there was a, you know, it, it, they got mixed up with renewable energy credits and that was really hard to account for. But, you know, in this new wild west of, of what people are calling carbon removal, like what's something that you think actually doesn't quite pass muster? Well, the million dollar question is natural solutions, um, which are important and critical to the climate solution. We cannot beat climate change if our forests and our soils you know, turn into sources rather than sinks of carbon. And there's a bit of a question, you know, take a forestry project, is that an avoided emissions offset or is it carbon removal? Well, it kind of matters, the details matter. You know, my personal opinion, and I think this is an area where the standards have not yet been totally aligned on, but my personal opinion is that reforestation, afforestation, planting net new trees in a durable way and there's a, a lot of an asterisk around the permanence question, but kind of net new 
biomass is carbon removal and that paying a landowner not to burn down the forest um, is an offset project, is a traditional kind of carbon avoidance project. Now, the thing that, you know, more important than the hair splitting of definitions is how can we get both of those projects to be high impact? And there are a lot of companies and people working on that. But that's, I think, where the rubber really meets the road is what type of natural solutions do you count as carbon removal? Because those tend to be the lowest cost ways to count your way down to zero. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the forestry stuff is a big deal. Soil stuff, as you alluded to, is arguably more complicated than forestry-based stuff because it's probably even harder to measure. You've got biomass-based stuff. Like there's all sorts of things you can do with waste biomass, right? And depends on what would happen to that waste biomass otherwise. And yeah, uh, so that that does seem like the vanguard or the that's the that's the place where the definition of removal starts to get a little thorny. But what's attractive about those, I mean, just to be clear, the reason why they're so popular is that relative to the other carbon removal options, they tend to be a lot cheaper, right? You get your forestry-based credits for 10 or tens of dollars a ton, where if you're trying to do direct air capture or something, it's hundreds of dollars a ton. You're near to a thousand. Yeah, totally. And I think the role of companies on this carbon removal front is to create what is going to be necessary in the future. Like the carbon removal game is a multi-decade game. We need to get to five to 10 gigatons per year of removal capacity, true removal capacity by the middle of the century, um, maybe faster. We're nowhere close to that today. I think the big role of companies is to create the market, and you guys have probably covered this on other episodes, but is to create the market for carbon removal so that those technologies will be available under $100 a ton at multi-gigaton scale in the future. We're nowhere close today, and corporate purchases is moving the needle. So again, this is my, my vision of good net zero. Our vision of good net zero is you're kind of funding catalytic R&D, making seed bets today such that scalable carbon removal exists for every company when 2030 or 2040 rolls around. I want to get back to reduction for a moment. Um, so part of what you're trying to build a watershed, as I understand it, is a platform through which companies will set those targets, measure those targets, and then actually take action. Most importantly, perhaps take action to to meet those targets. And on the reduction side, I wonder what you see, you know, you're, you're working with a host of different companies across a host of different sectors. Where do you see as... It, to the extent that there is any consistency, the consistent big wedges companies can take on early in this journey. Like, I'm company X, sight unseen, what do you tell me to do that's going to have the biggest near-term impact? The no-brainer thing you should have done yesterday is to make sure that all the facilities you control are powered by clean power. And there's, similar to the offsets removal discussion, there's a good and a bad way to do clean power. And so the thing you should have done yesterday is made sure that you have all of your facilities powered by clean power in a truly additional incremental way. We can talk more about what that actually looks like. The thing you should do tomorrow is to look at your carbon supply chain and do a combination of redesigning your operations and product to be lower carbon and engaging your suppliers to change their practices. And that is really the the kind of decarbonization cascade that needs to happen. And for virtually every company, with the exception of the big scope one emitters, that's where the action is. Now, what your carbon supply chain looks like is where the heterogeneity comes into play. 
Um, and you know, we work with companies across a bunch of different carbon supply chains. Sweet grain is really at the bottom of a um, agriculture carbon supply chain. And so for them, they are redesigning the menu to use lower carbon ingredients, and they're asking their most carbon-intensive suppliers to change practices, to install methane digesters, um, to reduce manure emissions for dairies and creameries, for example. Um, Square is at the end of a electronics carbon supply chain. And there, they are redesigning your square card readers and your payment terminals to use lower carbon materials. And their global supply managers, these folks who are out working with suppliers all around the world, are asking suppliers to use clean power, are sourcing aluminum that is smelted by hydro rather than coal. Um, and then we work with companies in software that are at the end of kind of a cloud supply chain, which is really a clean power deployment at data centers game that Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Equinix, and others are kind of playing it at various paces. So do clean power yesterday, and then actually x-ray your supply chain, figure out where the carbon's coming from, and either redesign your product or redesign your sourcing strategy to get those numbers down. All right, so final question for you. We have talked about this trend uh, toward companies more companies participating in the enterprise carbon management game in the first place and then also getting more serious about doing it. And that's happening, I think, independent of the, the at least in, in the U.S., it's happening anyway, independent of what might become a forcing function, which is the SEC stepping in and mandating it. What is your view on, you know, you obviously can't read the tea leaves any better than anybody else on what the SEC will do, but what kind of, uh, how important a moment would it be if the SEC actually does send down climate reporting guidelines? It would be important. And, you know, the G7 finance ministers committed in principle to rolling out mandatory TCFD reporting at a summit earlier this year. I hope the SEC follows the UK's lead, where the UK is requiring TCFD reporting, not just for public companies, but for large companies kicking in in 2022. Um, at the same time, I think the train has left the station. I think that this sort of scaffolding we've talked about, the expectations from investors independent of what the SEC says, the expectations from customers, which we haven't talked about, but that's another source of carbon questionnaires getting traded back and forth. Um, the fact that European regulations, as we saw with privacy and GDPR, can kind of drive action for companies that are implicated, even if they're not headquartered in Europe. I think all those things add up to the train having left the station on climate governance being a thing that American companies have to consider a mainstream part of their operations. Taylor, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Shale. This was a joy. Taylor Francis is the co-founder and CEO of Watershed. What did you think? Uh, give us a rating or review to let us know how we're doing wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet at us at at interchange show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Dalvin Abuaji and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. <laughs>